This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top blue team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Senior Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Blueprint Podcast, where we hope you build the world's best in cyber defense. I'm your host, John Hubbard. And again, we have our three amazing genius authors with us today, Kat Nerler, Ingrid Parker, and Carson Zimmerman, uh, authors of MITRE's 11 Strategies of a World-Class Cybersecurity Operations Center. Uh, how are we all feeling tonight? Are we ready to jump into another episode? Absolutely. Sure are. Let's Fantastic. do it. So... Last time, uh, we were talking about selecting and collecting the right data. And that data has got to go somewhere, right? We're bringing it into this wealth of tools. And that's what we get to talk about tonight. Uh, the chapter eight that we're covering uh, in this episode is going to be leverage tools to support analyst workflow. And I think, as I mentioned, uh, as we closed up that episode, uh, I have a lot of kind of strong opinions and feelings about tools as well. I've, I've run into a lot of terrible tools in my life and struggled through UIs that I hated. And, you know, why did they design it like this? Did they use this product and all that kind of stuff? Anyone that's had me as a teacher or listened to any of the podcasts in the past, now I'm always talking about usability and like, why is the tool in my way? Uh, stuff like that. So I'm really excited to hear what you all have to say about some of these kind of common tools and, and any kind of tips you can give us about finding the right tools to get the job done. So to kick off this episode, uh, I want to start where we usually start. Um, have all of you been uh, victimized by terrible UI design and terrible tools in your past? Or what, what is it that brought this chapter about and, and put it into the book? I, I think we all have. Um, and I'm, I'm having visions, just as you said that I'm having visions of, of terrible Java UIs that were conceived 25 years ago in a, a different time in a different place. And, and not on Windows and not on Linux and not on Mac OS. And, and it's all coming flooding back to me. I think we've all got complicated feelings about this topic. Um, and, you know, this has evolved so much. And the many years that we've all been doing this, obviously, um, it, this chapter is and the content therein is one of the reasons why we felt like we needed to do a second edition, like so many of the other strategies in the book. Um, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple things I think about when I approach this topic. Um, and one of them is, you know, the data estate for the SOC is sprawling. We talked about this in the previous strategy, right? This uh, most good SOCs I work with, in fact, some of the best ones um, are not in control of most of their data estate. So they have to deal with this multitude of where the data is and the different tools to do something about that. So um, there's a lot of people out there who use single pane of glass. And one of the expectations I would challenge straight away is that there is, in fact, a single tool that does it all. Rarely, I don't think I've ever seen that, that to actually be true. Rather, and this what has inspired the title for this chapter is, is that we instead have to think about it as a confluence of tools that require care and feeding over time. And that that confluence needs to come together in a way that makes sense for our workflow. So with those kind of functions we have to achieve, whether we're calling them one thing or calling them another, in your mind, like what are some of the core tools that a SOC has to have to kind of wrangle and organize and use their data and respond to incidents? So I'll start there. Um, I think a SIM tool is probably the most common of larger SOC 
organizations and a SIM tool or a security, you know, event management type of thing can bring together different kinds of data sets and you can build correlation rules to be able to sift through a lot of data at once. So it's a good tool for bringing things together. What other stuff might we need? I think there's, um, it depends on what you're trying to do from a workflow perspective, but certainly at this point, uh, many organizations are talking about automation, talking about SOAR, talking, you know, uh, security orchestration, automation and response, figuring out how they, um, you know, enhance what the analysts can do by doing automated types of activities as they go along. You might think about threat intelligence platforms, which we've talked about during strategy six about threat intelligence. Um, you might have separate log storage areas. You might be thinking about uh, data lakes, data lake houses, data warehouses, whatever term you want to put on all of that that you're doing right now. Um, you might think about, um, you know, kind of custom repositories. You might be thinking, we don't mention too much in the book, but you might be thinking about tracking systems for uh, different types of pieces. And you might think about um, even then case management. And so there's just, there's a lot of different pieces that can come together. And we break it apart in the book as to like, individual items and things that we can talk about in that space. But one of the things that we've noticed over time is that there's a lot of tools that are trying to converge and bring many of these functions in. And so as we talk throughout the, the conversation today, we'll talk about individual elements, but it doesn't mean that there's a single tool that only does one thing or that one tool does all of these things. And that's where it starts to become really challenging because as you uh, work with different vendors or you work with your own kind of open source or custom applications, figuring out what the boundaries are and how they integrate together is actually a bigger challenge than figuring out one particular tool because oh. there's just so many ways that they can overlap. Yeah. I and I feeling, think you can, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Carson. I was just going to say, Ingrid absolutely elicited one of the biggest challenges I think we've all had is like, where does one tool end and the other begin? Yeah. Because everyone's got different stuff that shape different ways. And it's like, is it a SIM? It is an XDR. Like, is it a SOAR? Is it case management? What's the difference? Ah, roll the dice. Um, what? Um, so that's one of the things we have to be thoughtful about in this space is, is when, when you say you're selling blank, what does it actually do? And, and when you say you need blank, what's the actual functionality that you're looking for? You know, and and some terms are very loaded and they have lots of emotion. Like some people have had terrible experiences with insert tool name here. And they're going to say, I don't need that. I need this other thing. Like they'll say in the olden days, they'll say, I don't want an intrusion detection system. They're worthless. I need an NDR. Well, <laughs> we talked about that in the previous chapter, but just to illustrate, it's like, what does an NDR do? Well, it collects data off the network and it produces alerts and it has metadata. And it's like, this sounds very familiar to me. So we want to be very thoughtful about saying, oh, technology X is dead. I need technology Y. That eh, tends to be a lot of marketing and hype. Yeah. yeah. And so I was going to break it down a little bit too into there's different kinds of tools depending on the function. So analysis is one type of tool. Um, so anything that helps an analyst do what they do um, from anything from scripts to uh, being able to look at data in different kinds, different perspectives in different ways. Another tool is for converging data sets and bringing them together um, and, you know, doing rules on them to figure out, you know, how to look at things. So if you break it down and think about things like that, um, that kind of helps you get your arms around these, these different data sets and these different tools that kind of 
get muddy. There's not a real clean way of describing them these days. And the third thing would be about sensors or the alerts that we've talked about in the previous chapters. So what's collecting things? So you have your collection, your correlation, and your analysis. So you could break it down like that. So, And that really goes to why we, we titled the chapter, like, leverage tools to support your analyst workflow, because it really is figure out your workflow, figure out how your team needs to function, figure out how you integrate with other parts of your organization or with pure organizations, and then find the tooling that's going to support what you want to do to the extent that you can go that route versus being driven by, oh, we just, we bought this tool. So now we have to do it this way. Right. Um, so I, the way you break it down in the chapters, specifically the, the terms you use there, you know, SIM, UEBA, case management, source, stuff like that. We'll, we'll definitely talk through all those. I think SIM is the, the first one in the chapter, so it probably makes the most sense to start with. Uh, when you think about SIM, uh, we should probably define what that means to you, uh, or at least what that usually means. Uh, I think you've a little bit already mentioned the converging of data, right? I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be part of it. Uh, and people might be hearing that and thinking, well, okay, uh, we don't have that. Or do I need that? Maybe we haven't bought that yet. That's one of those terms I keep hearing. Could you speak a little bit about what a SIM is, why it's important, what do we, we should be looking for it to do for us? We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. I can, I can start with a kind of a crisp definition I've been using for a probably too long. Uh, a SIM is a tool that is used to um, collect, normalize, persist, query, um, display, and correlate large amounts of security relevant information. Um, and one of the important things to understand about SIM products is that they, they came about um, in the early 2000s, about 2002 to 2005, because at the time, you know, big data wasn't a thing like it, it has been perhaps for the last 10 years or so. Um, in fact, a lot of the original SIMs were based on relational databases. So um, at the time, the idea of collecting a large amount of data together to do security stuff was a really novel idea. And one of the conversations we'll probably have in the next 30 to 60 minutes is, well, gee whiz, there's a lot of ways to achieve that same outcome. And maybe you buy a product that's labeled SIEM and maybe you don't. 
So that's not something that, in your opinion, is going to be a, uh, a must-have necessarily. You need the functionality. And this gets back to the yeah. point I made earlier. One way or another, the SOC needs to be able to collect, persist, and analyze, and correlate, and do all these wonderful things on an increasing uh, variety, velocity um, of data and volume, uh, three of the Vs. And how they do that is a conversation. Yeah, so I've worked in security operations, and it's a loaded question about do you need a SIM or you don't need a SIM. I've worked in some stocks that don't have tons of money, but have some really great scripters, uh, folks that know how to analyze and you know use some coding language to be able to do things. Um, and we've gone without a SIM um, pretty well, actually. So that that's an interesting kind of uh, you know approach to things, right? Because a lot of times we just take it for granted that like, oh, everyone must have a SIM, right? Because we just hear everyone talking about it. We see it at RSA and Black Hat and everything. Um, regardless of whether you have a SIM or not, is there a set of core functionalities that whether you're building it on your own or otherwise that like uh, lead to that deployment being successful? Like, is there a concrete list of like, it has to do this specific thing, that specific thing. Otherwise, we're just completely missing the boat. For sure. I'll, I'll start there. Um, so correlation rules are the bane of the existence of a lot of people who are managing sims. So being able to understand regular expression and create, you know, real complex correlation rules, um, that is, uh, it takes a real talented um, person. So I'm giving compliments to all those who are writing correlation rules and regular expression of your uh, different sim tools. So that's definitely one of the biggest things about a sim. Anything else? Well, I think when you start breaking down the functionality, you're really going back to some of what Catherine said. You're really looking at, can you bring the data in and have it stored in a place where you have it accessible at the speed and you know time that you need? And so that's something thinking about, you know, sims are often, uh, you might want to think about them you know, or, or think about your live storage and what you want to be able to access right now versus something that you might have in a backup data store or someplace else. So you're really thinking about how and where you store that data, how much you have at any given time, how much is immediately accessible for querying. Then you need to be able to run a set of queries on top of it um, to get out and extract the information that you're looking for. You need to think about accountability and logging. A lot of times a SIM is um, used by organizations who have auditing requirements. And so that ability to actually go in and know when data was put in, have the providence of it, know who accessed it, you know, make sure that it's not going to be changed, anything else um, can be a really important factor for however you store your data, whether it's a SIM or in another location. Then you need to think about, you know, the querying, the correlation. Normalization is one of the huge challenges because what is labeled as an IP address in one data feed is not is labeled as IP underscore address in another data feed, is labeled as IP in the third data feed, is wherever... Um, so all of those things to help you normalize, whether it's the naming or the time time zones or whatever else you need to bring in. Um, and then thinking about how you do, do you need a workflow on top of that data in that tool or is there going to be someplace else? So as you start doing your case management, as you start thinking about, you know, how are you going to take the data and what you find in the SIM and what you're looking at and start representing that or making it accessible to other analysts or putting it into reporting or doing something else. And then you need to figure out how far you need to go down that process of, does this actually do reporting correlation 
you know, with other types of data from maybe other departments or something else. So it really is thinking through the whole life cycle of how you're going to work an incident, you know, and how actually you're going to go from event to incident to response to everything else and figuring out what parts you, you want to put in that play. And so that's why we keep going back to, you can call it a SIM, but really you're trying to fit in certain parts of your workflow and make sure that you've got the capabilities that are going to allow you to do the things in that part of the workflow. And I have an idea for third edition of changing this completely and not talking about the tools, but talking about the workflow first and then talking about how the tools plug in. So maybe later, maybe next year. Maybe later. Um, You know, John, I think to, to double down on what Ingrid and Catherine both said, you know, when I think about SIM versus going and buying kind of an ordinary um, general purpose big data solution of some sort or another, um, or an EDR or something of that sort, you know, I think about probably four core features that I all expect to see in a SIM that may be missing from almost anything else I'd buy. Um, number one, I think about having a capability that has a lot of off-the-shelf, um, you know, robust data collection and parsing. One of the biggest challenges, if you're starting from a generic solution, um, you know, you're going to be missing a lot of those parses and parses are a pain in the butt to write a pain in the butt because there's thousands of them. Um, and it takes a, it, it takes an army of, of people, uh, you know, be it working for a vendor or open source community, or perhaps both to keep those up to date. So that's number one. The second um, is in any modern scene, um, we expect that data store to provide sub-minute query response for what I'll politely refer to as sane amounts of data being queried in sane ways. And sane is relative to your particular query language and and analytic problem. Um, The third is that it's going to come off the shelf with a set of correlation capabilities or rules um, where you have this beautiful menu of things to at least start from. Are they perfect for you? Probably not, but they're they're the menu for you. And then finally, you have these prefabricated ways of viewing all those beautiful things you've either collected or generated. And so if I think about a generic approach or I think of something that's not a SIM, it's likely missing one or more of those four things, whereas a SIM should be giving all four of those to you. Gotcha. So I like that way of breaking it down, kind of the the input, you know, can we bring stuff in and like cleanly just understand what it is in the first place? Uh, can we query the stuff that has been stored, the rule sets, and then kind of the, the visualizations and the viewing and the output of the reports and all that sort of stuff? Um, breaking that down into those those pieces, I think makes a lot of sense and, and hopefully is, is clear for the, the listeners. Uh, in terms of maybe uh, ROI or the value proposition on a SIM, Thinking about those things, I I definitely have a lot of people ask me, like, I know we're paying a lot for this thing, but I'm not sure I'm getting either what we're paying for it or the maximum that we could be getting for it. Uh, Any kind of guide questions that you could uh, give to listeners to have them maybe kind of self-reflect on, am I really getting anything or everything that I can get out of my sim? What should they be expecting? How can they evaluate the the ROI on their, their purchase there? I think that you're actually asking two different questions because there's the, are you, you know, would you want to go seamless? Would you want to say, hey, we don't want this tool. You know, we want to bring something else in. And this is a discussion I often have, whether it's about a particular tool or whether about to choose an open source project or whether to roll your own or something else is how much time is it going to take an analyst on your team, an engineer, somebody else to do the same things that this tool is going to do 
And not just the initial time, but keeping in mind that all the vendors are constantly updating what they do, providing new features, dealing with problems. Carson was just talking about parsers, you know. So just doing that self-evaluation of where you stand and, you know, how much does a does a person cost you versus, you know, what does it cost to buy the tool? And tools are incredibly expensive sometimes, but so are people. Um, yep. And so really starting to think there. And then I think there's the second question of, okay, you've decided to buy a tool and, are you going to get the value out of it? And that's a huge issue where you run into somebody who just says, oh, we're going to open up the box and we're going to install it. And we get our couple hours of, of training. And why is it not doing everything that we want? And Catherine, I just cut you off. So where were you going with that? Well, I had a couple of thoughts on this. Um, so this is back to your point about designing, Ingrid, and thinking about your workflow, right? So uh, back in the day when PCAP was super important, um, we didn't use Sims a lot for, for PCAP, for example, because, uh, you know, the sheer size and the amount of processing and all that goes along with it. Um, now that we have something called EDRs, um, that helps us with the whole PCAP problem, but it also kind of um, gives us some trade-offs on whether you even need a Sim or not, right? Um, or, you know, when you start talking about Sims, they're pretty expensive. If you can do some of the similar things with EDR and say some scripts to bring in some CTI and other kinds of data, maybe that gets you 80% of where a SIM might get you. So that's how you want to look at it is trade-offs of the kind of data that you're looking at, what you already have. Um, do you have some things that buy you a lot like EDRs and memory and all those things that EDR does for you um, and, and look at it from that direction? I, I would offer, you know... I I've met, I think probably, I've heard more people express more emotions about SIM since I've been doing this than any other tool. And that's one of the reasons why this was the first big one in this chapter. Um, you know, and one of the reasons why um, is when, when cloud, before cloud was really a thing, people would spend like millions of dollars on these tools and they spent a lot of time setting them up. And then as was implied, they some of them would walk away and then at the end of the three-year maintenance contract, they'd be like, wow, that was terrible. We're not doing that again. And they go buy something else. And they, they repeat the same cycle th over again. And, you know, they'd be six years down the road and they'd still be wondering, like, why is my sock struggling? Um, one of the reasons why, you know, we, we can be thinking about, excuse me, we can be thinking about um, cloud solutions to turn some of that on their ear. We're going to talk more later about the pros and cons for you know, putting your SOC data and tools in the cloud. Um, but I think up front here, you know, how do you go from I need a tool to I'm getting value from that tool? And, um, you know, how do I minimize my risk in buying the tool? Um, and that's actually one of the major things to look at in whatever sim you're looking at, on-prem or in cloud and vendor A versus vendor B versus open source A versus open source B, um, is what does that pricing model look like? Is it per node that processes the data? Is it gigabytes per day? Is it per number of analysts? There's a bunch of things that go into it. Yeah, one of the bigger downfalls of Sims, uh, if you're talking about how much value you're getting out of it, it's those correlation rules I, I mentioned earlier. If you're not getting everything out of your Sim, part of it's because maybe you don't have the the right talent that are sitting there writing those rules. So that's somewhere I focused before and had people brought in some more expertise to, to help build out the capabilities. What, what's end up happening 
is that a lot of the organizations I've I know who originally bought Sims, you know, many years ago, are now doing what what I'll call uh, or what I've heard referred to as running dual stack, meaning they've got their Sim, right, and that's doing a bunch of their kind of prefab Simmy stuff, and then they've also got some bespoke ML big data things, you know, doing the kinds of analytics. Um, and detections and data science and machine learning and more buzzword bingo um, that doing in an ordinary sim by itself would be inappropriate or simply not possible. Um, and then they they will put together kind of this bespoke data architecture to, you know, ingest the data once and send it to where it needs to go and, you know, enter message buses to solve that problem. Um, but generally speaking, these are things that you would only find in some of the largest organizations. Right. So with, with all that potential complexity, uh, you know, I, I think there's no tool that I've heard more over the years referred to at least having the potential to be that single pane of glass, right? <laughs> that term we, we mentioned at the, the top of the, uh, the episode here. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned having, you know, sensors producing data. We have our kind of converge that data, which is what the SIM is doing, and the analysis piece, which is also to a large extent, but not entirely happening in a SIM, uh, and case management, which could also potentially in some sometimes does happen in a sim uh is that the tool that is going to be if anything the mythical pane of glass or are we moving into a world where uh that's not a thing anymore or is there a better newer buzzword <laughs> acronym that might be the new single pane of glass any thoughts on that I don't know if there ever was a single pane of glass John I think you're right that that sim is the closest we get I think a different way to think about it is what is which persona's focus at which stage of the incident life cycle? Meaning, for example, a triage analyst's focus will indeed be the SIM and the SIM only for a very large percentage of their day. The, the TI analyst or the hunter's focus will likely be a bunch of other things, including a tip if you've got it, if you think that's that's necessary for you. It might not be. Um, you know, if there's a big investment in other big data stores, you know, that might be, it said, you know, rinse, repeat. So I would rather say um, when we, and that's why we, again, called this chapter, that what we called is, is focusing on NAS workflow is at, in the different personas in the SOC, think about that life cycle for them, Think about their focuses at each stage of that life cycle, and then you'll have your answer. Gotcha. So, so no, there's no single pane of glass. <laughs> <laughs> so we've closed the conversation. So I don't expect to really hear that term ever again, I guess. We've oh, yeah. Done. Done. This is it. <laughs> May 17. <laughs> Dig its grave, put it in there, bury it over. We're done with single pane of glass. No. Um, <laughs> so, so one other kind of thing I wanted to touch on on Sim, uh, in terms of just plain usability factors, right? You kind of mentioned viewing and searching and things like that, and, and speed, right, as well, uh, you know, being some of the things that we need to do or have from a Sim. Any other kind of thoughts on what makes a Sim more pleasant to use or what you should be looking for and like the user experience of getting into a Sim? Maybe that's search queries. Maybe that's, you know, I mean, the query language or visualization options or anything else that comes to mind there. For me, one of the big ones is your ability to pivot and to say the Sim is not necessarily going to hold every single piece of data that you need access to. 
So how easy is it to you, for you to move from working in that tool to saying, oh, I need to go get this particular you know, log, or I need to look at this malware, I need to look at this data, or I need to use something else. So it really is about the integrations and the pivoting um, and making sure that you're not having to like look at your SIM in one window and go, okay, now let me hand type over here, you know, the, this hash that I just saw. And it's like, you know, no mistakes would possibly happen as I'm doing that and, and look for the next thing. And so really trying to make sure that it's, um, again, going to support you in doing things as quickly as possible without having to do duplication of work. And Sims have enabled us to break down the jobs into, um, you, you can use less experienced people to kind of help with that first line on Sims and then have more advanced folks, you know, following up and pivoting and doing some other things on the side at the same time. So it kind of, you know, helped us to break down the sock, um, the window, so to speak. John, one of the ways I de de deconstruct this going along with what Ingrid said is, is thinking about for the different personas in the sock, um, how is that SIM improving either effectiveness or efficiency at a given stage in that life cycle and or for a given, you know, incident investigation response triage type scenario. Um, and that's where, you know, going from alert to, you know, a series of curated queries, queried, you know, curated dashboards, you know, or enriched information um, and the things that the SOC does repeatedly and, and helping them reason through that information, even before they start response, um, you know, to me is where uh, the value can be really great. And is once again, another point in today's conversation where we can say, the SIM is one way to do it. Analytic notebooks are another way to curate a set of queries and data visualizations together that enables people to reason through data very rapidly and pull data together from a bunch of different places. Yeah, so plenty of options on all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, one of the other I do want to actually oh, close ahead. out, though, because we've <laughs> talked about this a little bit and said, like, oh, you could do other things besides SIM, and here's some of the problems, and here's whatever else. I have worked with socks where Sims are incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. um, and so they are still a very valid tool. And I want to make sure we're not overemphasizing like all the problems without acknowledging it, you know, for many socks, it is a, it is well worth your time to look and see, is this going to be the right tool for you? I, I agree. I, I don't think I'm curious if, if a, an official industry analyst was here, what they would say, um, but you've, you're settling for us today, the four of us today. <laughs> I would argue that seams are on the plateau of productivity. When it comes to the trademarked um, hype cycle, I think they've ascended the plateau of productivity. And I think we all kind of have these kind of mature viewpoints on what they are and what they're not. Yeah, there's one point I meant to bring up earlier. This is uh, a more detailed thing, but um, bringing history of your incidents into a sim is a super useful thing. So back to what everybody's saying, I know it's a detail, but uh, I meant to say it earlier. One of the cool things about using Sims is you can build the the history into what you're doing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like, in my view, right? A Sim, you know, I, I see a ton and ton of value of that. Just everywhere, like largely, if you can get the right data in, if you can write the right rules, if you can make the right visualizations and dashboards, it's probably going to be worth it, right? In nearly every case, there's no other tool that really gets all your data in one spot, makes it more usable. The slide I have in my class is like, it's the tool that turns the coal into diamonds, right? If you make it do that, 
<laughs> and so it, it may not be making your data, but it's probably uh, or should be making your data better in a lot of cases. And as long as you have enough data to justify getting a whole system to do that and have those specific needs and you don't have other kind of scripts that can do that, I think it's definitely a, a well-justified tool in nearly all cases. And yeah, very mature product that's been around as much as everyone loves to you know joke and, and point out some of the ways we can mess up with it because it is complex, right? It's easy to mess up, um, easy to not get the value. Uh, but I think in general, yeah, solid, solid bet for a lot of people. Um, the other thing that, that I wanted to bring up here is, you know, with the context that the SIM can bring, that's all great. But we've moved into a world where there's a lot more focus on identity. We brought it up last episode, right? We were talking about identity kind of uh, being the next thing after looking at network, then endpoint. And now we're more focused on that. Uh, the other thing that or the next thing that you bring up in the book is UEBA. Uh, so I'd love to kind of start off the, the, the chat on that with what is UBA and is it more the function we're looking for here or, you know, just kind of the same thoughts on, are we looking for a product or are we just looking for a thing that does X? I, I think definitely this is a thing that does X and UEBA user entity and behavioral analytics is, is that concept of being able to understand that it's not just about what happens on a system, it's what the users are doing in this space. Um, and especially as we get, as we talked in the last episode, more towards SaaS applications, you maybe not even hosting a lot of the um, kind of data stores and um, applications that your users are getting involved with, really understanding what's happening in that space, who's using it, are they allowed to use it, when are they allowed to use it, are they accessing it from a different location, are there um, you know, things that seem off about the the kinds of activities that they're doing. That's really what you want to be looking for. Um, and with this, you're talking about users and entities. So you're also looking for, you know, devices and, um, you know, kind of the, the service calls and the things that are, that are, you're really looking for those anomalies of what's expected in your environment. And so this is one of those areas where people might look at it from an identity perspective and say, hey, yeah, there's a lot of tools out there that are capturing this now. You might also be looking, this is a place where, you know, the machine learning data lakes, other things are coming in where people are trying to say, okay, how do we model behavior in our environment? And this is a tough one. Because there are some environments where, yeah, you expect a user to uh, log in at a certain time from a certain location. They're in the office. They're doing what they're doing. You know, it's a nine to five, whatever. And then you have, obviously, you have remote work. You have people that are on shifts. You have people that travel around the world. You have, you know, devices that might be used between multiple people. You have all of these things that can make it really complex. And so this is a really, uh, this is one of those where companies, and the reason we talk about it from a tool perspective is, you know, there are companies that are spending a lot of time to try and figure this out and put those machine learning algorithms on top of it and figure out how does this all go together, which is something that many SOCs, you know, cannot afford. And there just aren't enough of the people who can do these kinds of analytics, you know, for every SOC to bring in their own person to think about this. The challenge is when you start doing that from a vendor perspective, they're looking at it from a very, um, you know, kind of broad lens of, hey, these are things that typically you might find to be unusual or you might find to be different, but they these systems require a ton of tuning to actually make them appropriate for your environment. And so one of the things I've seen in this space is uh, some of these tools actually have a lot of automation that go in with them and a lot of people don't use it. What they do is say, okay, we'll take the alerts that come out of these systems, but we don't trust them enough to actually go in and then take action, like actually just go shut down an account or turn off a system or do something else. And so people are, are trying to figure out like how to use them. But this is, um, 
I, I still remember 20 years ago working with an early version of these and just every, every couple of years I go, okay, have they gotten better? Are they right yet? Are they a good thing? Um, and they, they can offer a lot of functionality. So if you are a place that has um, a lot of very specific concerns about maybe your user group, or you have, you know, a lot of people that are visiting, or you just, you need to be monitoring that in a more robust way. Absolutely something to include. If that is maybe not in your use case, you might want to think about this more from a generalized identity perspective than this specific technology. Yeah. So I was going to say that the thing about UEBA and, and why it may maybe hasn't taken off like it might have is because you have to understand what's normal. And and finding out what's normal for most environments is is near impossible to do. If you're in anything other than a you know strict nine to five, we only use office products kind of uh, situation, then UEBA probably will work for you. But if you're a massive research organization that does different things every week and uses all the ephemeral ports all over the place, there it's really really challenging to come up with what is your baseline and what is normal. Therefore, you end up with a lot of um, false positives. You, you end up tracking things down. And so people just get kind of tired over time. That's That's been my direct experience with UEBA. I'd offer a couple points here. Uh, plus one, as usual. <laughs> I I think we look at it as a set of functions, you know, and we can achieve those functions by buying a product or not. Um, this is a yet another place where... I will double down on my perspective that the way the sock builds value and builds momentum is tearing off one small piece of the enterprise where impact, there's an opportunity to make impact and building focused detections and scenarios around that thing. So as Catherine was talking about taking any capability, UEBA or otherwise, and just throwing it on a highly heterogeneous organization and expecting magic to come out probably not work out the best for you. However, if you have a constrained set of engineers or um, help desk people or people within a constrained set of roles with with typical patterns for data and access and whatnot, you're probably going to make a lot of hay pretty quickly. Um, but it takes diligence and some of it can be tedious. And, um, you know, that's true here or anywhere else. And that's a really great point, Carson, which is, this particular set of tools um, is not something you have to think about deploying across your entire environment. Mm -hmm. It is something that you might choose to use for just certain parts of it that need additional monitoring. Um, and where this is, you know, you can reduce the amount of like false positives overall that you have and just say, okay, we're looking for something very specific here. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. When someone's looking at the UEBA product, and let's assume for argument's sake that product is uh, costed on the per seat basis, mm -hmm. and you say, well, you know, I've got 50,000 people in my enterprise, and each of those people have four accounts. Boy, you just got a pretty big bill pretty quickly. Why not focus that down a little bit to get started? Yeah. <clears throat> that's one of the things I, I commonly bring up as well is because I've seen that as well, right? I worked in a very large organization, hundreds of thousands of assets. And we, we tried the like, I don't know, let's turn it on and see what we find. And of course, it's just like, <laughs> right. And, and goes off like, like an alert bomb. And after tune, 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 tune. Yeah, I did find stuff, right. And we did find some useful stuff. But it, there was a lot of work that got into it. And so uh, that was my my exact kind of experience is like, we need to focus this on a single group that is going to act a little more uniformly than just 
this company, right? <laughs> and then I kind of thought about it and I was like, well, given the stuff that we found, like to some degree, had I known that we were looking for that going into it, maybe I could have actually wrote some of those rules without the machine learning magic. So if there are people out there that are like, listening to this like yeah we're not we're not fancy enough for getting into machine learning tools and spending all that time uh do you think there's still value in trying to write your own kind of identity and entity-based uh rules just looking for anomalies based on purely you know windows logs and that kind of stuff you can i have i've spent a lot of time in the middle of this exact problem john that you're describing you absolutely can however i recommend against it and this is why the velocity at which we are accumulating diversity in our enterprise and our IT and shadow IT footprint, uh, that acceleration is accelerating, right? So, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use the cliches and I apologize in advance. The point is, is like 10 years ago, you could have a SIM and you could collect a bunch of host logs and a bunch of network logs. And like, there was a fairly bounded finite set of detections you needed to write to feel really good about yourself. And now it's like, it's just totally blown up. And what I advise people to do is commoditize as much as you can, meaning, you know, don't write a, like 300 different detections against ordinary windows logs or audit D logs or syslog. I mean, you can, it's going to take you a long time. You can go buy products to do that now. Move on to the next problem. Buy the product and move on to the next problem or download an open source collection of stuff to solve the problem and move on. Yeah, so or maybe both. maybe not write it all yourself, but get, right. get a pre-written rule set of some sort and like try to leverage that, even if you don't have a specific tool implementing all the machine learning and, and stuff. Although that is being built into more and more products, it seems it, like in my experience as well. Um, I also would probably be remiss and not met. And if I did not mention that increasingly there's this ecosystem being built up around both commercial and open source products. And we start blurring the line where they're like these communities where, where people will offer things they've done. Um, there are languages, intermediate languages, you can write some of these rules in that you can go pick up and use so you're not starting from scratch. So I think it would be incorrect for us today to portray this as, you know, take what some vendor has written for you them by themselves and, and go use it. Rather, it's, it's in any case, leverage a community, leverage what else is out there. Gotcha. So the next kind of section after you, your UEBA uh, piece in the book was case management. And I know a lot of people have, you know, varying setups when it comes to that as well. Yeah. There's the people that kind of jump into the, oh, I don't know, I'll use what the help desk uses because that's ticketing, right? And then we have the like, <laughs> I'll try an open source thing. We have the, the dedicated like incident response platform and all of that. Uh, regardless of the way you approach it, what are some of the things we think uh, we should be looking for in collecting all of those alerts and working through processing them in an efficient way? So one thing that's super important about any case management is that you're using it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've worked for environments and I've used all these tools. I've, you know, we've bought them. We've, you know, uh, got modules that do incident response to other, the bigger the relational databases. We've gotten, you know, open source. I've done them all. And, and the biggest downfall is when people don't use them. And, and by that, I mean, the advanced people who are doing incident response uh, may not update a case for the operations manager to be able to brief out. 
So being able to trace from start to finish as you go, uh, a case management tool is the most key to that and being able to store information and search on that information. So being able to look for dates and being able to look for certain strings and, you know, whatever malware, you know, whatever you're trying to look for. Also be careful about malware. (laughs) Um, But being able to um, use the tool and have multiple people looking at it is the key to that. So beyond okay. using it, what else can we look for? <laughs> and now, that's totally I, fair because I work with a lot of companies. I'm going to double down because this is this is so important. Catherine absolutely nailed it. Um, if you have any case, any kind of case management system, you absolutely must be driving case hygiene, case correctness, case completeness. You know, time to close some set of KPIs that are meaningful to ensure that. You know, the people who are using it are using it and they're doing so held to a set of expectations that are commensurate with the complexity of your shop. Right. And that might be three people. It might be 300 people. Um, You know, the way I think about case management and and I'm going to do a little compare contrast back to seam. People often ask, do I need a case management system at all? And I would say, and yes. Yes, you do. (laughs) The question is where and how, right? Back to Catherine's point. Um, I, it's, uh, if there is a SIM out there who has a case management system that is as robust as a freestanding commercial grade or mature open source solution, I'm not aware of it, but you might not need that, especially if you only got five people in your sock. So, um, I would say the main thing I look for in a case management system, other than ensuring you're using it is, Um, Does the complexity of the information capture and workflow management that it has there meet your needs and not just the here and now, but think about, you know, where you're going to be in the time span that you expect to be using that solution. Moving from one case management solution to another uh, after a sock has been stood up like, oh, we don't like this one. We're going to go use this other one. I would argue is as painful, if not more painful than dumping a SIM vendor and going with another one. Oh, it's terrible. Yep. It is. And that history of your incidents, that's where the case management tool is super important. So if you're moving from one to another, and I've gone from open source to a purchased one and back, uh, and it is very, very painful. But keeping that history of what has happened is super important. Yeah, that's the, uh, you know, I I think the term you used before on that, Carson, is the Sox persistent memory. Uh, That's one of the places that it largely lives, right? And and depending on if you have a dedicated threat intelligence platform or not, like that might be where all of the indicators you've ever seen may live and only there, right? Right. And so if you're not recording that, you're going into every case with amnesia, right? It's just like, oh, I'm going to repeat history. Exactly. I don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely agree with that. Any other thoughts on uh, usability or workflow or specific features you you like to see or don't like maybe in a, a case yeah. management software? I just, I think about this again from that workflow perspective of, okay, you have to be able to get the data into it somehow. And how much work is it going to take to actually put it in there? Like, can you hook it up to your SIM? Can you automatically push information? Can you pull in from other, you know, other systems? You know, so if you've got, 
usernames or IP addresses or something else that's going in there, you know, is this another place where you can do correlation? It can automatically, you know, provide context around who is actually involved, you know, with this particular information. Then there's the, how do you share it out? Is this something that only your SOC can see? Is this going to be one of those modules Catherine was talking about that's part of a bigger, uh, maybe, you know, management system so you could get legal could see it or communications or somebody else so that if you have a major incident and they need to be aware of what's happening you know you don't have to then take it out and you know put it in a different format for them that may or may not be important to your organization um you want to think about you know how do you connect related incidents that's a big one where a lot of times you might have you know five or six or a hundred different things happening, depending on the scale of the incident. And you want to be able to group those in some ways and talk about the fact that they're related and they have a relationship and maybe it's parent child, maybe it's, you know, they go with each other. Um, you want to think about that audit, you know, audibility and can you um, know who made what changes at what time, you know, and who did updates if you need to do different things. And then you want to think about what comes out of it. So how does it support your reporting? How does it support metrics? Um, you know, especially, uh, you know, that's a way, this is going to be one of the ways that the shock is, the SOC is going to show value over time is being able to pull those metrics out and show what's actually happening and show what work they were, they were doing. And so having that kind of system where you can go in and query and pull the information out and have it in a structured format and to be able to kind of add the fields and the tags and the, the information that you need to make it valuable for how you need to present that up to your leadership team is going to be really important as well. So again, it's about what's your workflow, who are the people you work with, what access do they need to have, and how do you need to get the data in and out of it in order to, to support. And unfortunately, I could say that about just every tool that we have <laughs> that we're talking about, but that, that's a lot of what it comes down to. And then you just look at, okay, and visually, can you look at these things and like, you know, are they pleasing to look at? Are they, does it make sense to, to click on this button to get to that next place? Because if it doesn't do that you're not going to get people to adopt it and they're going to go back to their spreadsheets. No, I, that's where it, they're going to track. I want to pull the thread on one of the things Ingrid just mentioned, because this is also going to, this is another, another source of, of conflict and emotion in every sock I've run into. When you graduate from a system that is a fairly in, inflexible uh, ticketing approach to one where like you can paint UIs with boxes and buttons and dials and, and, and you can, it's like painting, and like, you've got to resist the temptation from going absolutely bananas straight out of the gate. Because otherwise, the analysts are going to be like, ah, it's take me 10 minutes just to close this one case. And I got to do 100 of these today. And like, they're just going to revolt. So um, as you increase the robustness and complexity of what you're implementing there at every stage, it's important to get that buy-in from the user community because they've got to feel like, hey, it's worth my time to fill out this field. I'll give you an example. One of the 3,762, I just made up that number of things that you can track in your case management system is, did I have the data I needed for this incident? And one of the closure criteria for a case can be yes, yes, no, or partial. And it, the analysts need to understand it's in their interest to actually fill out that field accurately because then they can go make a case for not having the data they needed 372 different times last year. So get that buy-in as you go. Yeah. And for case management, you want to look at the functions. And some of this depends on size, which parts of the, the case management you might use. So uh, most of them, you know, this, the fancier ones will let you do workflow, meaning you can actually move workflow along. 
Um, if you're in a smaller sock, that can be, you know, overwhelming to Carson's point with, oh my gosh, I have to click this and then I have to move the workflow. And um, so looking at things like workflow as a function that may not be as important as say putting like all the indicators and things of how it looked into a certain set of fields so that you can trace it later to other incidents. So really think about the design and what you use for case management. Yeah, for sure. De design is a, a very, very critical. I mean, the case management thing, that's probably the one tool that I've either it's made me love or hate going to work because it's like you're always in there, you're always fighting it or it's a total dream and like everything's great. Right. Uh, and so there, there are certain features that, you know, I personally think are really, really important in those things. And I think you, you hit on a lot of them. Um, one thing I did want to ask is uh, related to kind of that playbooks and workflow customization. Uh, could you speak a little bit about where the sweet spot is on that? Are we trying to take the definition of workflow more toward the extreme? First, you click this, then you click this, then you do this, or do we want to have it more open or probably somewhere in the middle, right? As I would, I'm guessing the answer <laughs> is, but how do we find that sweet spot? You're going to get three different answers, I think, here oh, from perfect. us. <laughs> because I, I don't love workflow, I have to say. I, you know, and I've managed socks. I've been an incident responder. I've done all these roles. And I just don't like that rigidity of I have to do this and then I have to next do that. I like the creativity that comes out of not being so rigid, at least in the systems themselves. I bet Ingrid and Carson have different opinions. I, I fall a little bit farther on the spectrum of, I like having the playbooks. I like having the, you know, definition and checklists and the things that you can say, okay, did I do the main points that I needed to do? Did I work? You know, is there anything I forgot? Did I hit this, um, the intent of what we were trying to do and figuring out how to do that in a way so that, you know, as a, as a manager in a sock, like as the individual, and this is the problem as an individual analyst, like, just leave me alone. Let me do my job. I'll tell you the answer in the end. As a manager, it's please give me all the data, have it in a structured format, and I need to be able to do a report out of it. And so that's why you end up somewhere in the middle of, you know, I think that I think you have to have some level of, of playbook and repeatability and structure behind it, because otherwise it's going to be um, it is very helpful for. Uh, people that are earlier in their career getting into this space. It is very helpful for the managers. And then you just have to figure out what is that spot for your senior people that doesn't break their creativity and doesn't squash their hopes and dreams every day that they come in, um, you know, and, and allows them the flexibility they need to actually be the creative people that they can be. So. I, I think we're actually fairly aligned here. You know, I've seen really well-meaning, experienced IR managers come and say, we're going to take our 8,000 pages of SOPs and right into their case management system. We're going to we're going to turn every case, every SOP into a case management workflow. It's like, whoa, dude. Um, I, you know, the, the point about being uh, uh, supporting creativity um, while reconciling that with uh, consistent information capture to me is one of the, the most important pieces in that, you know, and ensuring that you know, we're driving um, the the essentials around um, case hygiene and the KPIs that are important to us. And I've seen even in massive sprawling organizations, the workflows didn't mean to get that complex. What got complex was that you then have lots of different teams who have very nuanced feelings about the workflows 
that need to be built into the system and what information is captured in which fields. And, you know, group A uses one KPI that's worded the same, but it's actually totally different than group B and like them getting in food fights around that. So, um, you know, one of the things to think about when spinning up a, a, any kind of case management or for that matter, SOAR, anything where you're managing workflow um, for a SOC of more than a handful of people is having good ca- uh, change management um, and principles around how you're building those workflows and those structures, because otherwise it'll just be chaos of I want this, I want that. And, and when we get to uh, our strategy on metrics, we're going to have a lot of conversations about figuring out what is the right level of tracking and are you actually able to answer questions because of what you're tracking or are you just tracking for its own sake and those types of things. And so I think that's going to come up again as a trying to find the balance between things, between structure, between playbooks, between metrics, between everything else, and still wanting this to be a a fun but tough job and needing human creativity and the machines have not solved it for us and everything else. So, And one final point, whatever you decide is your minimum amount of data that needs to go into your case management, there needs to be someone following up to make sure that it's actually getting put in there and, you know, look at that quality control as you go along. Yes, 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 yes. You might even think about having like a case closure meeting or something like that on, in addition to not instead of the, kind of the KPIs and metrics that are tracked by managers and perhaps the the executive directly over the SOC on a routine basis. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm of the same mind of, of, as all of you on that. In fact, I have some some labs and courses that align with exactly some of the stuff you just said. So yeah, totally agree, right? I, th- I think there's this interplay between like the manager wants perfect metrics and perfect process and the people don't want to go crazy, right? And there's a, there's a short-term versus long-term win discussion to be had there that we won't get into now, but like it is, it's, that, it's finding that balance, right? I'm going to mention one more quick thing. Um, I, would, I would strongly encourage SOCs that everyone in the SOC should be in some kind of on-call rotation, including the managers. And the manager in-call rotation might be around like, who's the incident incident executive responder for the day or some cool title that said, that designates them as the, the person who gets tagged with important decision-making during their, their on-call period. Um, the reason why I make this remark in the context of case management system, it keeps it real and it forces them to use some many of the same processes um, and particularly the case management system, the rest of the SOC does. And it will it will drive down this big dissonance to, you know, put everything in here and make it complicated versus just let me do my job. Yeah. So one of you mentioned the uh, the phrase until the machines take over. Uh, which is an interesting <laughs> statement uh, in 2023, as we all know. Um, up until roughly the end of 2022, we wanted the machines to take over, right? One of the one of the things that we were kind of you know pushing our work towards was SOAR platforms, right? And AI is going to be you know the the new kind of answer to that. Uh, with SOAR platforms, it, it did. It took a lot of the work out of maybe some of those really rigid or like the boring steps of the process that we may have created. And it made it so like, oh, if it's easily defined, like this, this thing's going to do it for us, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about where SOAR fits into the other tools that, that we've talked about uh, here and how it's maybe different from a SIM? And, and do you need one or do you not? I'll take a crack because I think SOAR is in an area where people also have a lot of feelings about what is it even. Um, when I think about SOAR, I think about a platform 
that is focused on, as the name implies, building robust and iterating and making them even more robust workflows for the SOC. And that is usually around coalescing data that's in different places, supporting reasoning over that data and effectuating, um, you know, faster or more effective response than would be otherwise. And we can think of SOARS in a way as a platform in contrast to SIM, rather than being focused on collecting a lot of data, though they do collect some data, some SOARS do, um, rather than being collecting a large amount of data, um, instead of being focused on you know, the automation and analysis pieces, and you often see SOAR and case management you know, fused together. So, um, and then you'll see a bunch of seams with have SOAR capabilities and the all the case management systems that also are like, we have a SOAR module and it all gets very confusing. And this is why I'll repeat the same thing we said a couple of times already is let's focus on what are the functions we're trying to achieve rather than applying a superficial label to a thing we're considering buying. And as I've been thinking about SOAR lately, it's like many of these, these tools and concepts, it's not a single thing thing from a complexity standpoint. SOAR can be very simple. It literally can be, you know, if I see this, take this action. I mean, if I see this kind of email come in, you know, delete it out of a user's inbox or shut down a, a user account or, you know, lock it or something else. Like you can do some just very simple things that can be really powerful that can take that base set of actions off your plate. And that's actually a great way to start because if you if you start trying to do things that are really complex or you start doing things that are going to maybe be more disruptive in your organization, you have to get a lot more buy-in for that. And if you make a mistake, then you're going to get kind of shut down like, oh, yeah, the you know what, what's the SOC doing? They went off. They, they did X. Um, and so you actually want to build up some trust and get to that point. And so... Uh, you know, and maybe you get into those more advanced modules or an independent SOAR platform or something else, but don't think of this as something where it's like, oh, you have to go whole hog and, you know, again, do this across your entire environment for every single use case that you have. You can really start pretty simply um, to, to come up with something that can be effective. And even those little wins of, hey, yeah, this is how we respond or this is how we reach out to a user if we have a question about did they really log in from this location, um, all of that can take workload off the day-to-day -day actions from the from the SOC team. And that's really what you're trying to get. The two things you're trying to do are one, uh, be faster at your response. Well, I guess you're doing a couple of things. You're trying to be faster. You want to be, you know, as fast as the machines. Um, two, you want repeatability and, you know, kind of feeling like, yeah, when this happens, this is always the thing we want to do. And so you don't have to get the variances of how an analyst might do it if you know that you've got that standard to it. And then three, you want to make sure that the analysts are focused on the things they need to be focused on, which are the more human-based things than what you can actually do the automation on. And so, but I just, I wanted to very, I think it can really be a very simple thing without having to think of it as this big complex problem. Yeah. And maybe I'm saying this, the same thing, Ingrid, uh, or maybe I'm building on it, but it's basically, how can I expand my responders role? How can I extend what they do by augmenting what they do with some automated little things, whether they be bringing data together uh, more effectively or actually taking some actions somewhere? Um, of course, we want to be careful about taking automated actions. We've, uh, <laughs> um, as, as AI and ML become a lot more prevalent, um, we need to be thinking about 
not doing denial services and not uh, creating malicious machines that <laughs> take over for us. But I do think we are already working with AI and M ML type algorithms to be able to look more intelligently at large data sets across a lot of different things. And it is starting to show some promise. You were talking about user behavior analytics earlier. That's an area where AI can really be useful if we do it in a, you know, in a, in a, in a smart way. So we're looking to augment what an analyst does. I think that's what SOAR can do for us. Yeah, I want to I expand on something Catherine mentioned. When people approach SOAR, they often immediately get these visions of strapping lasers to sharks and having sharks with freaking laser beams and, and shooting those lasers at cyber adversaries in cyberspace and sub millisecond times, pew, 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 like pew, map, pew, 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 maps. And it's, it's all quite terrible and humorous. And I would, my number one recommendation for SOAR, which is consistent with a more general recommendation I make in the census, start with collecting and enriching information about whatever the analyst is first. Let me give you a very compelling example. If you are decorating your alerts correctly, you could very likely save an analyst one to two hours of work for every alert they look at because you are decorating that alert with everything about the user, the host, the service, um, the, the threat, the CVE. You pick an aspect of that alert and decorate the heck out of it. So um, I would strongly encourage folks approaching this anew to really hit a home run with that. And when you've done that, you will know that it's time to strap those those lasers on top of the sharks and go after people in sub-millisecond times. Um, the more general comment I'd make about SOAR, we alluded to it earlier with SEAM, et cetera, is, um, always start in alert only mode on any kind of preventative or response capability you've got. But to the point that was made much earlier was a lot of people find themselves challenged to get out of that mode. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the sore kind of, um, I don't know, vendor space and, and all of that is definitely, you know, blown up over the last couple of years. A lot of socks are, are getting, you know, various tools for it. I, I always ask in class how many people have it, how many people don't. It's not one of those things that everyone has, right? And I'm what I'm kind of thinking as I watch this space is like, I wonder if we're going to see more SOAR or if AI allowing you to just phrase what you want and spit it out as code is going to cause less SOAR because now you don't... Like part of the value proposition was you don't have to code it, we coded it for you. But when you can just ask for that, I'm wondering what that's going to do to the market as well. So well, you're, you're absolutely right, John. I think... It's a means to an end, right? And, you know, with the emergence of, of a lot of cloud-based computing, you also have this intermediate piece, right? You had SOAR, and then you've got a lot of the ways to achieve the same outcome based on cloud-based um, automation frameworks, which are also kind of codeless, you know, broad-scale automation. And you can go get them for, you know, just pennies, pennies to be able to go do stuff that it would have taken a tremendous amount of things to build on-prem before. Yeah, so definitely options are expanding uh, in that field. 
so very we'll, we'll fast. kind of see where that goes. Um, very, very interesting space. You know, I think we're all in agreement that automation is generally always better until it isn't. And you've told it to do something you shouldn't tell it to do. Uh, but, you know, faster, more predictable, all the, you know, uh, you know, reliable response kind of stuff you brought up is is exactly what I hear people kind of using it for. And phishing is the one, like, I ask every class, what is your killer use case for a SOAR platform and your automation frameworks and stuff? Phishing is Every single time, that is the answer. And so, if you if you haven't started this before, you know, take that for what it is. I hear a lot of people um, use it for that in a lot of successful ways, and I think it's because it's a, a fairly standard problem. It's like you have to take apart an email. We can parse an email. We can do these things with the pieces. So, you know, that that would be kind of my uh, thoughts on on that sort of thing. Is I, I hear a lot of people jump in on that. I don't know if there's any other use cases that jump to your mind that you, you always see people use. Any any other like, oh yeah, definitely do this specific thing with it. Well, I mentioned the one big one I always think of is is that of is of alert enrichment, um, and or um, automating elements of engaging users, which might overlap with your fish example. Um, the SOC, uh, especially if it's doing anything in the, in the realm of what either you'd buy or implement that smells like UEBA, the, the, uh, the frequent, was this you email saying, Hey, we saw you do something that was weird. Was that you? Um, there's a lot of automation opportunities there. Yeah. I've seen examples of that, like, um, not just over email, but like over Slack messages or whatever yeah. and saying like, Hey, yeah, was that you, you know, hit acknowledge two factor off, like all that kind of stuff. And that's a cool way to get rid of some of maybe those anomaly alerts that would otherwise have humans talking to other humans in a slow way. Right. So <clears throat> definitely that's one of those sky's the limit. You can do kind of whatever your specific use case is, but, uh, certainly a very value added product as soon as you come up with those use cases. The last thing I want to mention the last piece of this section here, and, and I've been maybe the most excited about getting to this one because I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear your take on this, is protecting all of these tools, right? The SOC Enclave, as you call it. And I think I want to start by throwing this specifically over to Carson because I know that things have changed in this chapter from the previous version of the book. You had mentioned that before, and, and that was one of the things I was thinking as I read it as well. Could you start with a little bit about what is the SOC Enclave and how has your thinking about what's necessary there changed over the years? Um, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I have lots of feelings about this and they're very complicated and they've evolved over time. Um, the SOC exists predicated on the idea that the enterprise it protects will be intruded upon in a major way at some point. And the SOC needs to be able to continue operating through such a condition. Um, this in turn means that it must be able to, to trust the tools and data um, that it has um, in the presence of an advanced or persistent threat. And in that way, um, SOCs are obliged to protect those tools and that data um, from, you know, other parts of the enterprise. It needs to insulate them in some way. Um, taken to an extreme, this can feel like the SOC has become a black hole and an event horizon forms around the black hole and all data goes into the SOC and it never emerges and you never hear from that data ever again. And that's not good. Um, the SOC needs to be able to constantly interact with its users, its services, it, its uh, executives, its partners, 
Um, and it needs to be able to pull levers on a, a increasing a set of response actions that grow over time. So there's no absolutist way of doing it. There's no way of saying, I'm just going to one way feed all of my data to the sock and that's that. And what that, that, so in, in the first edition in 10 strategies, you know, back in 2014, I made some fairly absolutist statements like never join the socks tools or data or users to the same windows um, domain or, uh, or active directory forest as the rest of the enterprise. I stand by the assertion that that's probably non-ideal for a lot of a lot of circumstances. However, there are many socks that don't have that luxury. And there's this sliding scale of risk and complexity and dollars you want to spend on, on how to solve these problems and where in the spectrum you fall. Speech over. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I, it's a real simple thing. You 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 don't want your adversaries to know that you're tracking your adversaries. <laughs> so uh, you need to do something um, to protect at least your case management um, and and some of the other things that you're looking at, right? So uh, Carson's speech, you know, very very eloquently done. Um, you you need something in between. You know, absolutely don't share anything and share everything. So could you give us a kind of example or two, like a quick specific, like attacker gets into the environment, what are they doing to the SOC or to the SOC's data or to the SOC's accounts and how are they doing it? And why does the SOC Enclave stop that? Or how does the SOC Enclave stop that? There's, there's two, there's two very concrete things that come to my mind. Um, and one of them, the SOC Enclave may or may not be able to help. And that one is sensor blinding. Um, turning off host bay agents, um, you know, doing things in the network that means they can't be seen by your network sensors, um, doing things to either turn off your log feeds or, or do things that they think that your log feeds won't indicate. So that's, um, that's the first. And then the other one it goes along with exactly what Catherine was talking about is, is that uh, the adversary using um, your tools as a means to understand what you see. Um, and then to be able to act just as fast as you are because you see what they see or they see what you see. Same difference. So, you know, those are those are two things I think about. And uh, we could have a we could write a whole book probably on how to solve this. Just just this one problem. Um, and one of the immediate things that always comes to mind is always have multiple perspectives from different log feeds, from, from different sensing technologies, and different detections on any given part of the enterprise or any given single threat. Um, in terms of protecting you know, the, the most critical information that we're collecting, in particular threat intelligence and case data, we always think about um, either putting that in a different identity plane or adding some kind of MFA on top of that, understanding those two things by themselves are imperfect and can potentially be circumvented. So we just think about raising the cost to the adversary. And I think communications is an important part here. You know, we're talking about tools, but this also feeds into incident response process and thinking about your communications channels and looking to make sure you've got at least one alternate communications channel that's a little bit 
you know, different or outside or that can be more protected or, you know, somehow is not all tied together through the same systems. Because if, if they can get in and compromise an email account and now suddenly they are, you know, or multiple accounts and they're able to track the messages that are going across or they get into your messaging system, you know, or your, whatever the platform is, do you have another route? I mean, Honestly, going back to actual phone calls and phone bridges is something that I've seen where it's like, because that's just not something we do on a regular basis uh, in some organizations, like just knowing that you have an additional setup or being prepared that if you um, if you do find that your, your email systems are compromised, what would it take to go do something else where you can have a communications platform that's a little bit different is a really important consideration here. Ooh, um, ooh, ooh. Um, I have a tangent on that. <laughs> Go, go for it, Garrison. Um, so every SOC is well advised to consult um, their legal counsel on what I'm about to say, because nothing we're, we're offering today should be construed as legal advice. However, um, in the, the SOC should think about having that alternative uh, means of communication and have them sanctioned and, and aware um, to their lawyers in advance, particularly if the, the SOC thinks that down the road, they have regulatory requirements for for records retention or or e discovery requirements. Again, on the on the advice of their legal counsel, they should think about having that all kind of thought about in advance, rather than like you know tomorrow, like oh everyone download the following app on your phone so we can call each other. Like, and the lawyers might be like ah right. So that's something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. There's always that kind of piece of it where we're like, oh, and then we have to think about the lawyers too. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's very easy to be like, oh, let's just talk on Telegram or WhatsApp or whatever, right? Like that would be simple until you realize like, oh, that becomes discoverable on a personal device or whatever if there's a big breach and you're, you know, highly regulated industry, whatever. So perfect advice there. Um the way that I kind of think about this problem is there's the the multiple kind of planes, kind of like what we talked about before, really, right? There's the identity piece of it. There's the endpoint, and there's kind of the the network piece. Uh, let's say you're a you know hundred thousand person an asset company, and you have the political will and the budget to do something reasonably complex. You don't have to go full you know top secret data skiff you know, paranoia uh, tier separation. Um, what kind of like practical things would you suggest for a SOC to like do? What, what would your setup look like in that situation? So if you have the means, I have uh, procured separate network connections. So you can buy, you know, uh, different kinds of networking um, and multiple vendors across that networking, um, you know, just kind of changing it up so you're not relying on one particular provider for everything. Turns out voice over IP tends to be um, intermingled <laughs> with some. So it, it is good to look at multiple carriers for your networks. It's good to look at um, different kinds of um, communications. Um, you can go what, like satellite, you can go, there's all kinds of different ways to change it up. So that's one, the networks. I would, I would say the second is identity. Um, and, and, uh, on a couple layers, um, I'm going to use Azure terms for a second. Cause Azure is the cloud I know the best. Um, so in Azure terms, you know, the SOC would think about having a separate AED tenant or failing that separate Azure subscriptions, um, in which to put its stuff and its users, um, providing it some insulation, um, from compromise of that. And we also think about the on-prem federation, 
uh, for that as well. And there's some implications on email and collaboration in chat. I probably longer conversation than what we're going to do today. So I would definitely offer that the identity plane, be it on-prem or, or in cloud, or usually now hybrid, um, is going to be an uh, interesting story as well. What about hardware? Are you thinking like, is this a, you know, we need a separate, what we might call a privileged access workstation and dedicated machine for being a SOC analyst versus being a normal employee? Are we separating things on, on that level? And, and one goes on the corporate network, one goes in this magical SOC enclave network. Uh, you know, are we, are we taking it to that extreme? I use Carson's uh, phrase. I've got feelings. <laughs> Let me tell you, I have set up a dedicated network um, with one computer on it that collected dust for two years because it was it was by itself and it was very secure, but no one would go over there and use it. Yeah. So you have to provide uh, ways for analysts to be able to do their, their work, right? Across different kinds of networks and, and things. So if it's its own dedicated box it'll be lonely sitting in the corner <laughs> and this is another one of those where you know so many times the information that's coming into the sock you know from a threat intelligence perspective or from you know constituents or something else is going to come across a corporate network and you need to be able to take that information and put it into the sock enclave as well and so you really like having those separate systems can be really challenging you know one thought is you can do the virtual machine where you have your you know, less secure system actually in the VM, because then if it gets compromised, like they can't really escape out of there and then still have the ability to copy and paste and take things out of that and put it into the more secure system, which is more the, the system that's around it. And that's a, a pretty simple way to start doing at least some level of segregation so that you get um, a, a little bit of differentiation between the different functions that you have. But um, as an analyst who has had to, at one point, I had four different systems on four different networks across a single desk. And the number of times I'm like, I just want this piece of information over this system, please. Can I? And I'm sitting there typing the hash in again. So I've, I've got feelings about this too. Yep, I've got feelings. Um, big surprise. Uh, I would summarize what I just heard in my own feelings and that copy paste in and out of the sock enclave is absolutely essential. The way you achieve that copy paste could be in and out of an RDP session. Um, it could be in and out of chat. Um, God help us all. It could be in and out of email. That's got its own set of, of challenges. Um, and the way you achieve that copy paste can become a source of hugely passionate debates between these security people and these security people talking about how we're going to be secure about security. And it, it, it's, they become absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of potentially complex things that can go on here and, and is, is a constant struggle of usability versus security, even on this level, like anything else. Right. And in my own experience, you know, I've, I've tried varying levels of, you know, segment the network, put a firewall in between us and the corporate network, and then you can and you can't do other stuff. And, you know, is it the identity plane that's going to get compromised? Um, the way I break this down is like, how easy is it going to be for a compromise of the constituency to become a compromise of the SOC? And, you know, whatever that level of comfort is for you, right, that's what you're going to have to pick. But ideally, it's very difficult. <laughs> and whatever you can do uh, without sacrificing too much usability, uh, still having an acceptable level of usability to kind of accomplish that. Uh, that's that's my feelings. <laughs> there, there's, um, there's another tangent on this that we're thinking about usability right now which we are very passionate about and being able to move 
within the decision cycle of the adversary. One of the other things to think about in terms of the SOC Enclave, and you may have feelings about on-prem and in the cloud and putting SOC tools and data on-prem versus on the cloud, et cetera. One of the essential things to think about here is, is how quickly can the SOC iterate, not but only through an incident and through that incident, that, that like alert lifecycle we've talked about, but also iterate and improve its own tools and capabilities, right? Being able to deploy new capabilities to perform data analysis or, you know, getting data from point, point A to point B, et cetera, in the cloud is massively transformative, massively. Um, and one of the very important things for the SOC is if it's going to go put its stuff in the cloud, it's got to get really good about how to secure that stuff in the cloud as well. And for that matter, which cloud, right? Is it the same cloud as the constituency um, or not? So there's there's some intricacies there and and, and there's regulatory implications. If the, if the SOC has data subject to regulatory scrutiny and it puts its data in the cloud, where is that data going? And are there laws or regulations um, that are relevant to that conversation? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of potential concerns, but a lot of, you know, hopefully things are getting easier over time, right? Uh, that, that kind of open up the ability to move data around. And, and as long as you know how to secure the cloud, right? Uh, we're in potentially in a, uh, <laughs> and that's a whole different conversation, um, uh, a world of, of things getting better and, and going in the right direction. Uh, so to close this up, uh, any final thoughts anyone wants to throw out there on uh, usability for SOC tools or integration or anything else that has gone unstated so far? I'd go back to something I said um, in strategy three is, is always getting, always be getting better, but stated better than that. Meaning, you know, we've had this conversation about the SOC tools and SOC architecture and SOC workflow. And I think this is a, another time to repeat the importance of having those engineers or the people doing engineering and development for the SOC, um, you know, frequently have contact and an intimate nuanced understanding of what um, the analysts, the investigators, the responders, the triage folks, who whatever their titles are, what do they do every day and how do we constantly make that better? Yeah, yeah I guess what I would add to all of this is that um, tools make and break security operations. When you have cool tools, it's easier to attract and keep, you know, really great analysts. So um, making sure that you just constantly evolve your tools and your ability to correlate and bring things together. That's fun for analysts. Um, and it's a place where I would focus if, you know, for any SOC. And I think uh, building from some of the things we've talked about with people and, and kind of taking what both Catherine and Carson said and, and building from that is you have to give your team the time to actually understand these tools to learn these tools, to research the tools, and to evolve the tools over time. Because if all you do is pull it out of the box, stick it you know, in your rack, hook it up and hope for the best, and then three years later, you know, you're, you're done and you're like, well, we need the next tool because that one didn't work. You're never going to be successful. All of these tools require care and feeding. They require maintenance. They require constant learning because the, you know, especially if you're going with vendor tools, they're going to be evolving themselves over time and you're going to have to learn the new features and the new integration opportunities. Or if you're doing open source tools, you're going to have to look for what the community is putting out there and figuring out how you're going to, you know, bring in the latest from that. So there's just, there's a lot of maintenance that goes into these um, that is really important and needs to be part of your workflow and part of your process and part of your staffing plan. It's not just going to magically happen because they had 15 minutes before they went to lunch and they decided to look at something. <laughs>
<laughs> yep, yep. So I think that's a, a perfect kind of a cap on the episode there. We all got a chance to, to share our feelings and, and go through the uh, <laughs> Blueprint Sock Tool Therapy Hour. Uh, awesome stuff, though. I had a lot of fun on this one. Uh, you know, as, as everyone said and, and has mentioned, you know, tools will make or break the socks. So, uh, you know, I, absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, and, and an important thing for anyone to consider and, and improve over time. So, uh, next time we're going to be back with episode nine, which is going to be communicate clearly, collaborate often and share generously. So excited for that one as well. Uh, in the meantime, listeners and watchers, if you're on YouTube, uh, make sure you subscribe on your podcast aggregator or on YouTube to make sure you get that, uh, as soon as that one comes out, you won't want to miss that either. So with that, we appreciate you all for being here. Thank you to our authors for spending their time with us again, and we will see you on the next episode of Blueprint. Bye, everyone.